Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. I continue my conversation with Jeremy Schneider, the founder and CEO of Firetail.io, an end-to-end API security startup. Towards the end of the first part, I asked Jeremy how a developer should think, particularly when using APIs, with so many moving parts from security and performance aspects. He answers that and continues to share his story relating to the extensive experience his co-founder has with API-based architectures and implementations and how APIs could either implement business functions or offer specific extracts of data held in their applications and what would be some considerations for integrating or using such APIs. How they first spent time in understanding how APIs could be compromised to pick the scope for what their company, Firetail, should be addressing and how many breaches are related to authentication and authorization and hence why a zero-trust approach is very critical and the good practice of sharing only minimum data that needs to be shared. He talks about the importance of a central logging approach and then I asked him how he manages to get a good night's sleep while playing a very crucial role in the chain of enterprise security that to in an API-based solution for all his clients. He then shares his personal practices to handle pressure and how to stay calm at work. I was curious to know what is the story behind naming their company Firetail, which he explains. He is also a polyglot. And I asked him about how he developed an interest in learning many languages. And then Jeremy asked me questions about my linguistic interests. So I do also share some of my experiences. And finally, he shares his career tips. And on my request, he shares a wish for the listeners in Finnish. Don't worry, he also shares the same message in English for those who don't follow Finnish. Listen on. So while uh, the concept of APIs uh, is so powerful and it lets you literally build fairly complex and cooperating systems, how should a developer think when using APIs? Because it's a completely different scale and so many different moving parts. Uh, How do you, again, from a security point of view, and of course, usually one thinks about the performance uh, with yeah. all this. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Well, so many thoughts on that. Okay. Um, you know, we've done we've done a lot of research around this, and in fact, my co-founder, you know, is a developer with a long history of API experience, mm-hmm. uh, building APIs, consuming third-party APIs, integrating APIs. I mean, like uh, almost everything you could think around, think of with an API that you can do, mm-hmm. he's done at some point. Okay. 
And he and I were talking about this when we very first started the company and we started trying to understand like, okay, how should a developer think about building a secure API? Hmm. And we had a couple of observations. So number one is actually APIs are kind of unique. They're unique because they not only expose data, but they expose business functions. So if you think about some of the most common APIs that get consumed today, you can think about services like Twilio or Stripe. You know, these are third-party services uh, exposed to developers via APIs. And with an API, with an API call, you can send a text message, make a phone call, uh, push an authentication code, uh, but you can also process a credit card payment, right? Mm -hmm. So we're implementing business functions. And then at the same time, when we're building our own APIs, we're very often exposing a data set. Mm -hmm. Or if you think about, let's say the Facebook API, mm -hmm. I can get Shiv's profile and I can maybe get Shiv's friends, mm -hmm. right? And I can maybe get some information about Shiv's interests and likes and you know those of his friends and his network and so on, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this kind of unique combination of critical business function and sensitive data behind APIs. So that was one consideration that we thought of from the very beginning. It's like, wow, you you actually need to defend your API against abuse for both, both for calling functions and for accessing data. Hmm. Number two, when we started Firetail, we actually started uh, creating a database of all of the API-based data breaches that we could find. Mm -hmm. And we started to analyze them. And the reason that we did that was we wanted to understand what goes wrong. Hmm. Uh, either, you know, what are attackers going after mm -hmm. or what are the mistakes that developers are making in their API design? Mm -hmm. And so we looked at probably like 50, 60 cases by now. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the things that we observed is that in the majority of cases, it does come down to something that a developer didn't do properly on the design of the API. Okay. Usually it's authentication and authorization related. Sometimes it's also related to data handling. Mm -hmm. um, very common example is that uh, APIs often return more data in response to a query than is actually required. Mm -hmm. So let's say like if I'm trying to pull up your profile on LinkedIn or something like that, um, when I'm using the mobile app, it's actually pulling up your profile over an API. Okay. Maybe the profile only shows me first name, last name, company, title, whatever, but actually the API request may return first name, last name, email, home address, phone number, you know, all of this extra data. Okay. And they just rely on the, the LinkedIn mobile app to not display that data to me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's another example of a problem that we see that uh, developers are, are sometimes like mistakenly configuring on their APIs. Mm -hmm. So basically the, the things that we would say like the high level guidance for most developers is A, make sure you're authenticating. Mm -hmm. B, make sure you're doing authorization of each request okay. against the function being called and against the data being requested. Mm -hmm. And you have to do that authorization on the server side. Yeah. And that is something that like we've actually seen go wrong in a number of cases. Mm -hmm. Sometimes developers try to push the authorization function into the mobile app or into mm -hmm. the web app or something. But guess what? It's not actually very hard to find your API addresses on the back end. Mm -hmm. And developers are not going to use your app when they try. Oh, sorry, hackers are not going to try to use your app when they try to get your data. 
So that's that. And then the last thing is um, try to think of a zero, kind of a zero trust basis. Hmm. So like zero trust, very often people apply it just to the idea that like, hey, the answer is no, unless you can prove to me why you should be allowed access to this data. That's great. That's very good on the authentication and authorization, but also think of it on the data side. So the answer is you only get the amount of data that is required to fulfill your request. Hmm. So I'm not going to give you back the email address and the home address and the phone number if that's not required. Mm -hmm. So those are like the top kind of tips. Authenticate, hmm. authorize, only give back as much data as, as required. Uh, now with... Uh... Let's say whether it is uh, IoT, where there are probably so many devices all wanting to either you know, pump data in or probably yeah. wanting some controls back to change their behavior. Or yeah. when it comes to mobility, mm -hmm. all these connected devices and moving devices, uh, there are probably so many things that could go wrong at runtime. Uh, so how does that change the complexity or the magnitude of the complexity of anything that you build, because you can't probably yeah. foresee you know, who else is going to be kind of wanting to talk to you. No, you can't. Um, and it is a challenge. Mm. The um, One of the challenges around it is that because of what you described, you can't foresee who will need to connect to a various, you know, any API. Mm -hmm. uh, we do see more and more APIs being made public by default. Hmm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if you've put the other controls in place, but if you're putting an API public and you don't have good authentication, authorization, data management, whatever, that's a pretty high risk. So that's one. But in terms of, let's say, mitigations and best practices around it, um, I think central logging is actually one of the most important things. You can't know in advance everything that a, an attacker will try against your API. Mm -hmm. You can't know in advance all of the normal behaviors that might come out of your API. Mm. And so like to that end, you really need to be logging somewhere centrally. And mm. too often, we actually don't see this happening. Mm -hmm. uh, what we see instead is that people rely on the native system logging of wherever they're running their API. The challenge there is that like if you have a data breach, where do you go look for log files? Mm. Is it on the server that was running your API or is it on the serverless function or is it on the container platform? Or what if your APIs are spread across or your app is spread across all of them with different APIs, et cetera? So that's a big problem. Uh, the other reason for kind of making sure that you centralize is if you're trying to catch weird behaviors and bugs and trying to trace like which part of an application is not working, is it with when API B communicates to API C and requests one particular function, like if you're not logging all of this centrally and you don't have that data available, it's very challenging. So this kind of centralized logging and monitoring, I think is so, so crucial. And it's not something that people are actually talking about enough in our opinion. Um, there's, a, there's one more aspect of it, which is that around the world right now, we're seeing new regulatory requirements around reporting data breaches. Mm -hmm. Well, like if you don't know your data breach happened mm -hmm. and you don't know the scale and the scope, it's really challenging. Yeah. So sometimes we're seeing like people reach out and they say, hey, your data may have been in a data breach. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. What do you do with that as a, as a human, right? Yeah. Y- your data may have been exposed. Mm. So I think it's actually important for organizations to have more clarity around the scale and the scope of every breach. Mm-hmm. You should be able to know exactly how many records yeah. somebody extracted. Of course, there will be situations where, you know, that's going to, if somebody really owns your systems, they're going to turn off logging and so on. Yes, of course, like these things can happen. But you should do the basics that you can do to set yourself up for the maximum probability of having full visibility into things. Yeah, I heard that this use of may is more to protect themselves. If they said your data has been breached, it is more like an admission and they're probably open to a lot of lawsuits and other things. Yeah. 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 Paying compensation for, let's say, like identity theft monitoring or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So when you run a company that kind of sits in probably one of the most sensitive areas and does that, uh, how do you ensure that you get a good night's sleep? (laughs) Well, a couple things. So first, um, we have two parts to what we do. Mm -hmm. We have one part that's really designed for security teams, and we have one part that's really designed for developers. Mm -hmm. And on the developer side, actually, the answer is pretty easy. Uh, we make everything that is designed for developers to use from our software stack, we make it open source. Okay. And so people can go view it. They can inspect it. They can ask questions. Mm-hmm. If they have concerns, they can see it. If they don't like the way we're doing something, they're welcome to take our software and make a modification for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some level of just like shine a light on it, be fully transparent and you know, people will either view it and they'll decide it's good for them or bad for them. It's a fit. It's not a fit, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the point is like they can go into that with their eyes fully open mm-hmm. and we can feel good about it from our side. Mm-hmm. On the other side, the parts of the product that are really designed for security teams, um, we do a couple of things. So first is, you know, we we have very high levels of test coverage requirements internally. Mm-hmm. So no releases go out without hitting our thresholds for test coverage. Everything goes through um, both functionally and unit testing before it goes into production. So, you know, some very basic checks that we can do on that side. We also run um, some security practices around our software development lifecycle. So we do um, very regular reviews on all of the third-party components that we're using, all the vulnerabilities included in them. We have a process uh, that we go through. We actually have and just, I mean... Even in, we we run on Google Workspace, we have a shared calendar that has our um, security review process. And it's a, you know, a shared calendar that shows up for everybody who's a member of the team that's responsible for reviewing that. Mm -hmm. We have regularly scheduled uh, review sessions that we book in the calendar in advance. And so like, there's no excuse, you know, next quarter when your review time is going to be or next week or next release cycle, et cetera. And then we run the company on SOC 2 basis and we Mm -hmm. run our data handling on GDPR. Hmm. Um, It's not to say that it's foolproof. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest, for us as a young company, it's overhead. Hmm. It's the kind of thing that on the one hand, a lot of companies would say like, oh, you know, worry about that later. Mm -hmm. You know, get the product up and running, get some customers, et cetera. And I don't think that you can worry about it later. I think you have to do both. I think you have to, yes, you have to get the product up and running and get customers, but from a trust perspective, from a confidence in what we're doing, um, you know, we need to be able to do both. 
Then we do one last thing, which is we mask PII in our own database. Okay. So when we look at like our encryption schemes and we look at how we're ingesting customer data and so on, we do uh, mask PII with uh, an encoding system. So. But in spite of all that, and as a growing company working with uh, kind of probably different geographies, different team members yep. and so on, are there any personal practices that let you stay calm and you look pretty calm? <laughs> it's all a facade shift. Uh, it's all uh, smoke and mirrors. No, no, look, I mean, sure. I actually think um, one of the things I do personally is I, I have a little bit of a routine mm -hmm. to structure my days. Um, I do my kind of heavier, more thought intensive work in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, I do customer conversations in the morning. Um, I do, let's say four out of five days, I get a workout in. Okay. in the day. Uh -huh. um, I tend to be like a right before lunch, kind of squeeze in a workout. Okay. Um, and I try to change that up so I don't get bored of one workout routine. So uh -huh. I go through a few different things that I do uh, week to week. Um, I actually think it's very important to keep yourself physically active. And there's, mm. you know, a lot of science around how physical activity leads to, to, you know, mental calmness also reduces the, um, what are the hormones that cause stress in your system? Uh -huh. Um, so, you know, there's, there's that. And otherwise it's, you know, you, you have to have some level of trust in the people that you build or that you bring into the organization and how you're building the organization. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think anybody in our company should feel like they have the weight of everything on their shoulders. Mm -hmm. You know, we try to hire good people and delegate things that should be delegated and we try and we don't always succeed, but we try to make sure that nobody has like all of the pressure on them. Um, it's the best we can do. I don't know if it's perfect, but you know, it's, it's, it's what we can do. Yeah. Very well said. Definitely. As a team player, knowing that the rest of the team is there to support you, I think itself is a, probably a great stress reliever and you can take risks. Yeah, this other question that I asked you earlier on uh, why Firetail? No. Uh, yeah, the name or the company? Yeah, the, name. Or what? the name. Yeah, uh, there's some practical reasons and there's some like kind of reasons that sort of make sense. So um, on the practical side, look, we were able to get not the .com, but the .io, okay. which is kind of, you know, the hip, uh, yeah. the hip young company thing. Right. Um, also, we didn't see any competing trademark. Uh, relative to the cybersecurity space. When we actually started the company, we had a different name as a placeholder. We knew that we wouldn't probably stay with that name. Uh -huh. um, and, uh, and then we did a survey of like when we were getting ready to kind of like launch for the first time, uh -huh. we talked to all of our design partners, our investors, our advisors. Uh -huh. We sent around a survey of like five or six names that we had brainstormed, all of which um had some logic around like what they would have been and uh, firetail was the clear winner among yeah. the survey people yeah. um there's also like the all the names that we picked they had some logic okay so part of what our software does is um as api calls come into a server firetail evaluates them to see if they're good or bad and they can actually like block bad calls mm -hmm. so in a way it's kind of a firewall for an api Right. Okay. So there was kind of the there's the fire. Yeah. The other side of what it does is it actually sends centralized logging. So we talked about like how we are such big believers in centralized logging of API activity. 
Well, in if you know like Unix or Linux systems, you know that like uh, tracking log files is often the tail function. So the command line tail. Okay. So you see like, okay, we've got like the blocking function fire. Okay. We've got the logging function okay. tail. So there was kind of a logical thing around it. Um, ah. All the other names had little explanations around them as well. Yeah. Um, and, and in the end, actually, it doesn't really matter that much as long as it's like a memorable name that people mm -hmm. know. Yeah. It's not like we go out and, you know, every time we meet somebody, we try to explain, no, well, you know, it's the firewall and the tailing and blah. Yeah. Nah, just okay. how it happened, kind of. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes it's a good conversation starter, though. Yeah. Can be. Yeah. Okay. Um, Continuing on the theme of you know, Jeremy as a person, you yeah. mentioned that you, know, you have an interest in languages and mm -hmm. are a polyglot. Yeah. So was that out of necessity or out of interest? Um, actually, more out of a just kind of circumstance, I think, than anything else. Mm. Um, you know, my father was American. My mother is Finnish. Uh, mm. I myself am a dual citizen. We grew up with both languages at home to some extent. Okay. Although there was definitely a period where we didn't speak very much Finnish at home for many yeah. years. Um, we lived in Germany when I was young, but oh. quite near the French border. Um, so I spent a lot of time in, in France as well. So there was just kind of a lot of exposure throughout the course of my childhood. Uh -huh. And then uh, I did find that languages, all these European languages were quite easy for me. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in my schooling, I took a lot of language classes, mm -hmm. partially just to boost my uh, GPA, my grade point average. Mm -hmm. um, my fun story, my last year at the University of North Carolina, I think I had five language classes. Wow. And um, I was just trying to, I just needed credit hours. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I wanted to bring up my GPA. So I think that last year I took Portuguese, Norwegian, French, and Spanish, uh, four language classes. Okay. Um, and it was just, you know, there's also a lot of overlap, right? You know, if you, so Portuguese, for instance, what I took at that time, I already spoke relatively fluent French and mm -hmm. quite good Spanish. Mm -hmm. And if you speak those two languages, Portuguese is like, I don't know, a 10% additional effort or something. Mm -hmm. um, and similarly, I had, you know, learned German. I had to learn Swedish for a time at the university in Finland. And, um, you know, German and Swedish and Norwegian is also very close um, so there was a lot of like overlap. A lot of these were not very hard to learn over time. Unfortunately, like a couple of those have really faded away. Like if you asked me today to have a conversation in Norwegian and Swedish, I, I really don't think I could do it. Um, and most of the others, I, I think I still hold my own. I have demoed our product in Spanish, in French, in Portuguese, in Finnish. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I try to stay on top of it. Um, and thankfully, I usually get an opportunity. I think the one that I don't get much of a chance to speak very much is French, mm. um, unfortunately, because I was an exchange student in France when I was young. I love yeah. the language. I really enjoyed the time that I spent there and uh, so on. But I just don't run into a lot of situations where, you know, I need to speak mm -hmm. French. Okay. Yeah. I also have an interest in languages and picked up a few, but then one of the uh, problems I used to run into because I don't use them actively, you start with one language and suddenly some other words creep in. Sure. Maybe yeah. through the sentence. Yeah. 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 Okay. I think most Indians that I know speak at least three languages. So how about you, Shiv? Um, and the total number of languages will probably be around 10 or 11. Um, yeah. Many of them are 
Indian languages plus, of course, I course. learned German. But then oh, cool. I spent some time in Algeria. So the choice was between Arabic and French, and I chose French. French yeah. Yeah. And then uh, the Spanish when I was in uh, California for a while, uh, you know, just to learn that. Yeah. Uh, it's always interesting yeah. to understand both the language construct and the words and some typical expressions. Yeah. 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 And how uh, many do you think you could like hold a, a, a conversation in today, like, you know, like a business conversation? Yeah, business conversations are easy. French, German, yeah. Uh, yeah. Are, are kind of okay, yeah. Yeah, and of the Indian languages? Yeah, uh, Indian languages, at least about four or five of them, yeah. yeah that's pretty yeah. impressive. I, I was born Good in on you. You know, one state, and then yep. uh, now I'm in another state. Uh, plus, there are a couple of other things. Uh, my uh, father used to work in uh, another state where um, when we were kids, uh, they used to talk in that language so that we don't understand. So it was more imperative for us to learn, not to know what they were talking. So each one yep. probably had some reason to. Um, see, before we close, uh, I usually like to ask uh, our guests some career tips. Yeah. Uh, in your case, if somebody is considering a career in uh, you know, the security space or the space that you are yeah. in, uh, yeah. for uh, two segments of uh, people, one, those who are wanting to start a career in IT and uh, those who are probably going through a midlife crisis of sorts when they've done something saying, what am I doing here? And uh, should I change my specialization or should I get into this? Uh, what would be your uh, tips? Yeah. So, well, let me start by saying I actually thought I was done with cybersecurity a couple mm. of years back. Mm. Um, I was thinking about like either getting out of IT altogether or moving into a different direction of IT. Hmm. And then the pandemic happened. And during the pandemic, we realized that how important the development of the vaccines would be. Hmm. And it so happened that the company that I was working for at the time, we knew that our software was being used to protect uh, lab environments where the vaccine was being developed. And or, or a couple of the vaccines were being developed. Mm -hmm. And so I really realized like, okay, I'm not the scientist. I can't do the mm -hmm. biology. I don't know the biology. But there is both an enabling function of being able to provide people safe environments to do their work. Mm -hmm. That is super critical work. Mm -hmm. And there is also a mission function because we also knew at that time that criminals and um, certain nation states were really heavily targeting those organizations. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I would say, especially to those who are, let's say, mid-career and considering a, a change is mm -hmm. cybersecurity is actually one of the areas where you can feel a strong mission around what you're doing, mm -hmm. like an inherent value that you deliver to your customers and to the organizations that are you know, that you're helping out. So I think there's actually like a very compelling reason to consider this direction. Hmm. On a practical side, how do you think about getting into it? And this is something where like, I, I host another podcast from time to time, and I've talked to a lot of people around kind of getting into it. And a lot of people talk about getting into cybersecurity through, you know, entry level kind of analyst functions. And hmm. Analyst roles can be very, they can be very challenging. Mm -hmm. They can be interesting. It all depends on the organization that you join and how they treat their analysts. I have seen certain companies where an analyst role is kind of a dead end job. 
you're analyst one, then you become analyst two, then you become analyst three. But fundamentally, you're you're working in a security operations center or a SOC for you know 30 to 40 hours a week and you're analyzing cases. What you want to look for is an organization where you have the possibility to go analyst one, maybe analyst two, and then you have a number of different options after that. So that's one is I would say like, you may have to start from the analyst perspective, but you can look for an organization where you have the opportunity to branch out. The other thing I would say though, is I actually see a big convergence coming. Hmm. There's been talk recently of how the CISO role, the chief information security officer role Mm -hmm. is evolving actually to like taking over IT. And if I think back to like at the beginning of my career, for a long time, it was like IT included security, but IT was the main function. <laughs> and now we see with the shift in infrastructure that like things got parallel for a while. There was like IT and security, separate organizations. One worked on infrastructure, one worked on security events. And now we see actually with a lot of third-party providers, kind of cloud plus SaaS, you know, those organizations are taking care of the IT infrastructure side of things. Mm. So actually the importance is more on the security side. So I think if you kind of position yourself in a way where you have skills that are applicable for IT or security or for programming, because Mm -hmm. actually there's too much data being generated in security organizations. Mm -hmm. So if you have data analysis and programming skills, that will serve you well as well. Then on a practical note, I would say like read, like really read a lot. So I use Feedly. I have about 20 feeds of different things that come in. I don't read all of them, but when I see a headline that sounds like something new or something interesting, I save it for later. Mm -hmm. And then what I tend to do is I tend to load them all up on my iPad and I go to a coffee shop away from my, uh, away from my workstation and, you know, have a coffee, have a tea, whatever, sit for a couple of hours and catch up on reading and like force yourself to keep learning yeah, wonderful. On that uh, very encouraging note, uh, thanks a lot uh, you know, for taking the time and That's sharing pleasure. your own story. I just want to request, uh, would you want to uh, wish our listeners something in uh, Finnish? Yeah. Toivon, että olette nautineet tästä jaksosta ja toivon, että jos teillä on kysymyksiä, niin kirjoitakaa mulle sähköposti tai laita viesti LinkedInin kautta ja toivotan teille Maybe a quick translation for those who don't. I just said, uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this episode and you've gotten yeah. something out of it. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out and wishing you all the best in the rest of your day. Thanks a lot, Jeremy, once again. It's been a pleasure, Shiv. Yeah. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.